0: stay with us. Raise your hand if you don't have a Bible tonight, and Wes and Kelly will get one right to you, and so I will give you the page numbers to follow along. Also, take out the handout sheet that is in your bulletin, and we can get started. You will notice that tonight is part two of our 12-part series in the book of Judges, and I would say that from your response in email, you enjoyed part one, at least felt that it was... So much more hard hitting and so much more applicable than you ever imagined, and I would hope that that continues all throughout the series. But tonight's lesson is entitled Victory in Defeat How God Uses Defeat to Train the Nation of Israel. There's a quote there by Rick McKinley who wrote a book called Jesus in the Margins, and I wanted to begin with that. He said of himself, He said, My soul is thirsty. I can drink in all the world has to offer me. And I'm still thirsty. It is this thirst that leads me to ask, what is the point of life? The meaning of our life is Jesus. It means we must go to him to quench our thirsty hearts. But we seek life in other things, all the while rejecting God, the very source of life. We spend an enormous amount of energy scurrying about finding water. And when we finally do find it, we head for home and pour it into our cistern. But the cistern is full of cracks and we can only stand there watching the water leak out while the sweat from our labor is still on our foreheads. God calls to us and says, I'm right over here, a fountain of pure living water. You will find the satisfaction you seek. Come and drink. And yet... We continue to look elsewhere. I went to Rob Bell last night. How many of you had an opportunity to go see Rob last night? OK, a few of you. Rob Bell is a pastor of Mars Hill Church in Michigan. And there's another Mars Hill in Seattle, not related. However, they're both excellent teachers. And he's on a tour around the nation uh, doing different venues. And he had a venue and he entitled his tour, Everything is Spiritual. He's kind of a much more of an artistic kind of talker and kind of takes a while to make his point and kind of builds on different things. And anyway, what I thought was fascinating is he was at the Crest Theater last night and he sold out. And I looked at his whole tour all the way up to this and He sold out every show. And I was thinking for a pastor to walk into a town and for people to sell out the whole venue just to hear someone talk about God. That's extraordinary. Now, he has written a book called Velvet Elvis that a lot of you may have read. It's kind of a neat new way to look at Christianity and spirituality. And he did the NUMA videos, if you have ever seen any of those. That's what kind of put him on the map. Everyone uses his videos. They're kind of little devotional videos. Well, as he spoke last night, he talked for two hours and he did something that I've always wanted to do. And that's to use a whiteboard. However, I love whiteboards because all I do is draw and design and maybe someday I'll have a whiteboard that'll be in the round so that you guys could be able to see it. The problem is, is it cuts off either that side or that side when I do it. That's why I don't. But he had a huge whiteboard that was probably 20 feet long and he just filled it up with material and and as he was talking towards the end, he made one interesting point that kind of stuck in my head and he said, if you look At the creation account, it begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it talked about the Spirit hovering over the waters, or hovering over the surface of the deep. He said it begins with something so intangible. It begins with God, and God is all Spirit. He doesn't have a body. As a matter of fact, he's very strict on not creating an image that would say, this is what God looks like. You don't know what God looks like. You cannot contain God in an image. And it's so vast and so amazing and so intangible, but it's this spirit that is eternal that never ends. And he said, and it funnels down and all of a sudden at the bottom, you have a funnel going up, which talks about all the dry land and the seas and the water and, and the animals and, and this and that. And it's all tangible. Everything is about what you can feel and what you can see and what you can engage with and what you can put in a lab. And he said, and all that filters upwards and there's, it all comes to a crux right in the middle. You have spirit one way and you have lands Tangible the other way. And right there in the center are human beings. He said, do you understand that all human beings are half spirit, half tangible? And you cannot take one away and still have a human being. They are a perfect marriage of two different worlds, a spirit world and a tangible world. And he said, but what has happened is that we in our culture have cut off all the spiritual side of it. We have cut off the idea of the supernatural. We've cut off the idea that there's anything eternal. We've cut off the idea that there's an afterlife. We've cut off the idea that there's some spirit or soul dwelling within us. And he said the response to that has been absolute boredom. He said, when you cut off half of who you are, The dirt stuff is just not enough to keep you going. He said, you must understand that we are both and they work in conjunction with each other. Now, as he began to speak on those things, I began to think, you know what? Sometimes I want to crave just the tangible because I'm tired of chasing after something I can't see. It's so hard to pursue things like humility when you can't put humility in a beaker. It's so frustrating to be able to run after spirituality or to run after commitment or to run after emotions or to run after love, much less selfish agape love. And all these things are so slippery and I almost want to run over to something that I can grab like a Twinkie that'll make me feel better. And I realized that that tension, the tension from my flesh, the tension wrestling with my spirit and warring every day and saying, are you going to pursue God or are you going to focus on you? Are you going to build his kingdom or are you going to build your kingdom? And I find that in that tension, I consistently see failure. I see flat out rebellion where days when I just don't care Days when I set it aside and I'm frustrated and then a bunch of Christian people make me mad and I'm angry at them and in some way I've attached them to God. And so in some way to reject them means I must reject God and I want nothing to do with it for a while or I'm exhausted. You felt that that you 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 try so hard. and It's like, you know what, I'm battling the addiction and I don't want to do that. God asked me not to do that, but I'm sick of struggling And every day I struggle and I get more and more tired. I eventually just want to say, forget it. I just want to do what I want to do. I have found that there's a lot of failure. There's a lot of rebellion still in my heart. A lot of days that I just don't want to do it anymore. But instead of giving up on me, in every child of God... He has sent the Holy Spirit to put in alarms. He's put little boundaries and checks and balances and will use the very thing that you are using as an avenue to run away to bring you home. He will use the very bondage of the addiction that you suffer from to reveal to you that you need Him. He will use the failure and sin in you To make you humble, which is what he requires. You say, well, well, I don't understand. I mean, are you saying that sin is good? No. Sin is not good. When David killed Uriah the Hittite and took Bathsheba as his wife after he'd already slept with her and had an affair and she was already pregnant, was that good? It was not. As a matter of fact, David was rebuked severely for it. And it looked like all the hammer of God was coming down on him. And yet, he continued to be the king. He continued to be the apple of God's eye. And I would suggest to you that the lesson that he learned from there made him a better king. Made him a better man. Made him more loving. And made him understand grace. I've had many a friend that had been judgmental. And then fell away from the Lord. And when they get back, they're much more fun to hang out with. Because they've lost the edge of their judgment. And they suddenly resemble Jesus Christ a lot more. The fill in the blank in front of you is what I would like you to embed into your heart tonight. And that is failure and loss can be building blocks to God. Failure and loss can be building blocks to God. That's the very nature of grace. Failure and loss can be building blocks to God. Brett, as you fire up the map behind me, I would like all of us to turn to Judges chapter 3. We're just going to cover one chapter tonight. Judges chapter 3, verse 1, it's page 152 in the Bibles that I just gave you. Judges chapter 3, verse 1, page 152. 152? 171? Did I mess that up? Wow. Yes, the whole message is going to be off like this. Sorry, I hate to... (laughs) I was trying to hide that until later. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate that. (laughs) Right, exactly. So what's the page number? 171. Goodness gracious. How do I have 152 written down? Here we go. Now, I have... As you know, in the series of Judges, the amazing ability to have a laser pointer. Woo! We're going to have fun. Now, I would just like to have you take a look at this map just real quickly. As I shared with you last night, showing you where we are in the world. This is the Mediterranean Sea. As you bend around the top, that's where you have Greece and Asia Minor. This is modern day, what we look at as modern day Israel. And there was a division line here, the Jordan River between the Sea of Galilee and the, uh, what they would call back then the Salt Sea. Over here is where Moses and the Israelites defeated the Ammonites over here. And then they crossed over the Jordan into the Promised Land and they began to battle with a bunch of nations. Here's what I want you to realize. There was people groups in there that didn't want to go anywhere. And so you see the Hivites up here, Girgashites, Canaanites is a general term and specific. Philistines are over here, the Perizzites, Jebusites, Hittites, Amorites. All of those people, basically, you'd have a guy with a name, and then when he had a big old family and it made a big old city, they would just put an It on the end, all right? So, um, basically, I would have the Lanceites, and then he would have the Mikeites, and then we'd, you know, we'd all get the chance to fight. We'd have a Randyites group, and it would just kind of be fun. And so that's what all these are. So, clearly, you had a guy with the name of Ammon right there, and he became the Ammonites. That's all it is. It's nothing more difficult than that. But as we begin... You will notice these nations are referred to. Here we go. Judges chapter three, verse one. These are the nations the Lord left, meaning he was he was driving out all these things for Moses. He was leading in success for Joshua. But when it got down to a time when they had removed God from their mindset, he said enough and he took his hand away and he left these groups to fight. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not yet had previous battle experience. All right. Quick thing. New generations were coming up all the time. As they had children, we always look at the Bible and we think it all happened over one weekend. There's hundreds of years sometimes in between. Sometimes it will be 70 years and someone will pass away and a new generation will come up. And every new generation had their own challenges. Israel has always been a warring nation. Everybody beats up on them. They're always beating up on everybody else. And it just seems to be conflict, conflict, conflict. So suddenly these young kids raise up, they're walking away from God and God needs them suddenly to continue to take the land. They don't know what they're doing. They have no idea. So he said, I'm going to leave these nations for two reasons. Number one, I want to see where your heart is. And number two, I want to train you up because for the rest of your life, you will battle. And that's for a reason. Says what? He left these nations. The five rulers of the Philistines. Who were the Philistines? You remember them uh, in a couple of famous stories. One of them is Goliath. You remember David and Goliath. Goliath was from Gath. There were five major cities of the Philistines. They were the sea people. As a matter of fact, as you look along this coast, a little hook right here takes in all their major cities. They had five major cities. They were the ones that would be the traders from the ocean. They and the Phoenicians were considered the sea people. It was the Philistines who had developed the ability to smelt iron and create iron chariots and create iron weapons. And they were an extreme warlike nation. They were always brawling. And in Samson's story, which we're going to go into a little later in the series, it's all about the Philistines. Battle of Philistines back and forth. Israel had already taken three of their five cities and then they lost them. So they're back into the battle again. So the five rulers of the Philistines were left, all the Canaanites, meaning these specific peoples right here, right above the Philistines, the Sidonians. That's another word for the Phoenicians, the people of the sea that were a little bit higher up. And by the way, if you remember the evil Queen Jezebel, she was of the Sidonian people. And the Hivites, these guys, the Hivites were kind of like the lame people. They were a subgroup of a band called the Horites, which I think is a terrible name for somebody I'm whore. How are you? And well, I'm better than you. My name's not whore, so that's good. So they were a small subgroup of the whoreites. but what was interesting is they mostly worked with democracy. They were like, I'm a lover, not a fighter. I don't want to do this. And of course, they ended up getting demolished. So, that'll teach you. <laughs> Always fight and be mean. Here we go. And... So we got the Sidonians, the Hivites living in the Lebanon mountains from Mount Baal, Hermon to Lebo Hamath. And they were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands, which he had given their forefathers through Moses. All right. They're being set up for something. What were the rules that they were given? Were they confusing? Were they hard to understand? Were they too deep? Were they in a parable? Were they in a riddle? I don't know, let's read them. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 28. I would give you the page number, but I'm probably wrong. Deuteronomy 28.1. I have page 144, but what do I know? Somebody tell me what it is. Is that right? Woo! 144, here we go. Deuteronomy 28.1. It's the little things in life that I get excited about. He gave the Israelites very clear instructions. Not too difficult, not rocket science. He said, you're about to go in this land. What's going to happen? Well, you're probably going to blow it. That's what he said. Here we go. If you fully obey the Lord, your God, and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord, your God, will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord, your God. You say, well, what am I going to get? Verse 3, You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. Your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. The Lord will grant that the enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. They will come at you from one direction but will flee from you in seven. The Lord will send a blessing on your barns and everything you put your hand to. The Lord, your God, will bless you in the land he has giving you. The Lord will establish you as his holy people as he promised you on oath. If you keep the commands of the Lord, your God, and walk in his ways, then all the peoples on earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they will fear you. The Lord will grant you abundant prosperity in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock, and the crops of your land. In the land... He swore to your forefathers to give you the Lord will open the heavens, the storehouse of his bounty to send rain on your land in season and to bless all the work of your hands. You will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. The Lord will make you the head, not the tail. If you pay attention to the commands of the Lord, your God, that I give you this day and carefully follow them, you will always be at the top, never at the bottom. Do not turn aside from any of the commands I give you today to the right or to the left. Follow other gods or serve them. Does that sound pretty good? That's a lot of blessing, right? You look at it and go, man, that's intense. Why wouldn't you do everything he's about to tell you? And he gives you a real quick warning. However, verse 15, if you do not obey the Lord, your God, do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today. All these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And then you get totally depressed reading the rest. What did he ask them to do? Obey. When you walk in the land, here's what I want you to do. You're my people. You don't do whatever you want. There's a lot of stuff I'll let you do, a lot of stuff I will encourage you to do, a lot of stuff I will make you enjoy. I will bless you like mad. I will make you laugh. I will allow you to run. I'll allow you to be free and have desires of your heart. But do not follow other gods. I'm it. You and me. And do not intermarry with the other peoples that are around you because they'll lead you away from me. When you walk in, remember, I'm bringing judgment on these people. I've already dealt with them. Their time to get smashed is now. I'll smash you later. But for right now, it's their time. And I want you to go in and I want you to demolish everybody. Don't make treaties. Don't hang out with them. Remain totally separate. But Lord, we're going to live next to them. I get that. Remain totally separate. That's all I'm asking you to do. Are we clear? And they all say, yes, Lord. We're absolutely crystal clear, sir. Well, what do you think they did? Completely blew the whole thing. Look at Judges Judges 3, verse 5. Now, these are the people they lived among. Why did they live among them? Because they didn't wipe them out. So it all begins with compromise. Isn't that what we talked about last week? A little bit of compromise today leads to a little bondage tomorrow. And by the way, when we're reading this stuff, are you getting the whole application to your life thing or is that too far of a stretch? Okay, let me make it real simple for you. When you became a Christian, he said, I want you to surrender to me. Well, what does that mean? It means walk down an aisle? No. No. It means give me all of you and I will be your God. I'll bless you. I'll walk with you. I'm not going to make everything go cozy for you because we still have stuff that we need to do. Okay, but I will be your God. All right. So what do you want from me? I don't want you to engage with the world and intermarry with them, become them, engage with them and walk away from me. I don't want you to follow other gods. I'm in. Okay? That's all I want you to do. Isn't that what we've been told to do in the New Testament? Live in the world, but not of the world. Remember? Be a light in the world, not to be consumed by the darkness. Be salt of the earth. Do you remember that? You're supposed to be different. You're supposed to be separate. You're supposed to not do what everybody else always does. And you're not supposed to love it so much, you just cave and buy into everything they're selling. Well, eventually, the Israelites got sick of playing the separate game and they just wanted to do what everybody else does. Does that sound like us? Yep, pretty much. That's us. There's no difference. And how did it go? Well, when they allowed these people to remain, they began to live among them. They lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And then look at verse six, direct opposite of what God asked them to do. Verse six, they took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons. And what? Serve their gods. Okay, he asked them to do a few things. They exactly did the opposite. You ever do that in your life? Okay, you're reading the Bible and it says, do not do this. What do you do when you go home? Figure out a way that you can do that, right? But you've got to do it in a way that you won't get busted, right? First of all, you have to figure out a way not to get busted by your spouse. Then you got to figure out a way not to get busted by God, all right? And usually your fallback position has got to be grace. God will understand. Okay, that's usually where you got to go. I understand. I play that game. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, your, their God, and they served the Baals and the Asherahs. Huh, that doesn't sound good. What's a bale? Well, it's something that hay is put into, right? Isn't that right? What is the bale? Bale means master. Very simply this, the major gods of the land that they walked into, the major god, he's like Mr. Popular God guy. His name is Baal. All right? Now, as a matter of fact, it affected everybody's name. They'd be bale this, bale that, bale this. It means master. This big God, Baal, was the one that went head-to-head with who? Do you remember Elijah? Remember the story up on the Mount Carmel where he said that a God that responds by fire? That was a head-to-head with God and Baal. Now, Baal's not even a real God. So clearly, it wasn't even that big of a deal for God. But they thought this was the man. They're Oh, you are amazing. And he had a mistress. Every God has to have a mistress, apparently. His mistress was called Asherah. There you go. And the way they would worship on all these, these were largely, it was all a sex agricultural based thing. I know it's kind of a weird combo there. However, it was all into the fertility of the land. And so there was a lot about sexual immorality. And it was a lot about, oh, we got to bring our harvest here. And, oh, it's all about the world and Mother Earth. Those are the main gods. They walked right up. They married with them. They engaged with them. Hmm. Deuteronomy 7, one. God said this, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to possess and drives out all these nations, when God has delivered them over to you and you've defeated them, destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your wa- your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and quickly destroy you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down the Asherah poles and burn the idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord, your God. The Lord, your God has chosen you out of all peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, a treasured possession. Let me ask you a quick question. Does God have the right to ask that of you? Does God have the right to say, will you be mine, just you and me? Okay, let's, let's make it a little bit more practical. Does your wife have the right to say it's just you and me? Is that okay? Or is that cramping your style and she has no right to demand that of you? Well, who do you think you are? What do you mean it's just you and me? I'll do whatever I want to do. It might be you, it might be somebody else. I don't know, it depends on my mood. Do you understand that if that is the case, there is no relationship? So God says, it's just you and me, right? Well, I don't know. Okay, then you're not ready. It's just you and me, right? Kind of. You're not ready. It's just you and me, right? Yes, Lord, absolutely, it's you and me. All right, let's keep it that way. Do you realize that in the Old Testament, every time somebody would walk away from God, God called it adultery? there a reason for that yeah because he considers it a relationship he considers it a marriage he said when you walk away from me you're cheating on me and i don't want to hear it it's you and me that's it i don't want you walking around picking up anybody else and do i have a right to ask that of you i'm demanding it of you because if you do not we don't have a relationship do you understand pretty intense and he set out very clearly what they needed to do and what they didn't need to do. Now, did he tell them what they needed to drink? No. Did he tell them where they needed to hang out necessarily? No. Did he tell them anything else? He gave them some general guidelines. Will it be just you and me? And they couldn't follow that. Have you found that God's not enough to fill you up? Have you found God wants him? Have you found that what you crave, God does not give you? I would answer yes. So if you're going into this and assuming that God's going to kind of fill up everything that you want, you're pretty bummed out, right? What a waste. Complete failure. Christianity to get stuff is a bad idea. Christianity is about surrender. Christianity is about engaging with a real God. You go, well, I don't kind of like that one. Do you have another one? Do you have like a Christianity light? Do you have anything that I can kind of get involved in that's a little nicer, actually? Nope, you either have God or you got nothing. That's it. Yeah, but I don't like that one. It's the only one. Ah, uh there's a bunch of them. They're all over the place. Really? A lot of people have thought there's a lot of gods. You sure they're really a god? Oh, absolutely. Because that's what the bookstore says. Oh, okay. You try that out. See how it works for you. Look at verse 8. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Kushan Rishayim, king of Aram Naharam, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. Oh, you want him? All right. Bye-bye. Locks the door. It's almost like that whole thing. Oh, I see. So you just want to cheat on me whenever you want. All right. Oh, look, you can't get in back inside. That's too bad. Oh, who are you hanging out with? Oh, you're on the streets. That's a drag. I guess you probably shouldn't have done that, huh? Lock. God, that's so not grace filled. OK, but you're so not living a relationship with me. No. If you want it, go for it. Over and over, what I think is so awesome is when Joshua brings up Israel and he says, if you don't want to follow God, let's just clear it out right now. If that doesn't seem right to you, great, pick something. Pick a God. But if you're going to pick me, we got rules. we got rules called, you can't cheat on me. That's the rule. I'll bless you and I'll be with you and I'll love on you and I'll take care of you and I will cherish you. But you walk away from me. Click. We're going to see how you like it. Then I'm going to open up the door and I'm going to poke my head out. and I'm going to go, you ready to come home? Look at this. When they cried out to the Lord, oh, I'm out here. I can't believe I'm out here. It's cold. Oh, it's terrible. It's miserable. That's funny. You thought it was the greatest thing in the world. That's why you bailed out on me. When they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a what? Can you hit the next map, Brett? He raised up a deliverer. Remember the judges? That's what it's all called. When you look at the little map, which you can't see, because it's really tiny. Here's the whole region that we just talked about. Every white box is a different deliverer. You think God's going to keep doing this? Yeah, you want to see grace and compassion? Welcome to the book of Judges. Over and over they walk away from him and leave him. Leave him, leave him, leave him, leave him, leave him. And then they go, oh, my gosh, what a stupid idea. I'm horrible at this. I can't believe I walked away from you. I only want you. I only want you. I only want you. So he raises up a little white box. Get him out of the jam. Lovey, 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 lovey. Then finally they go, hey, what did I see outside the window? Walk away. Click. Door locks. Ah, let's try this again. Here we go. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. Meaning he was a warrior, rose up, beat up the enemy, got him free. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Now, that's the same word that's used over and over with Samson. When he shoved down the pillars, when he ripped the lion apart with his bare hands, it came upon Jephthah when he wiped out a whole army. Every time you see these things, when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him in power, they're absolutely unstoppable. It's the same word that when Jesus walked into the synagogue and he opened up the scroll of Isaiah, Isaiah had written, and there will be a shoot that comes out of the stump of Jesse, From Bethlehem. And he begins to describe who the Messiah will be. And it says, and the Spirit of the Lord will be upon him. Jesus rolled it back up and said, that has been fulfilled in your midst. I'm here. When Jesus came out of his baptism water, they saw the Spirit descend upon him like a dove. That same Spirit, the same dunamis or dynamic power that is upon Jesus Christ, the same Holy Spirit was offered to you on your day of salvation. Can you do mighty things for God? Absolutely. Then why are you still in bondage? Because you keep walking outside. And you walk outside and you go, man, that looks good. And you know what? It does look good. I'm not going to play with you. I'm not going to pretend like, oh, sin's not fun. Sin's not. No, sin is absolutely a blast for about the first couple hours. Listen, let's be adults here. I'm not going to tell you anything that you don't know. All right. That's why we keep running away, because it's attractive. And it's exactly what you want and what you need for a short time. Problem is, it doesn't last. And eventually you're going to get sick and tired of chewing on rot. And you're going to want to come back home. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he became Israel's judge and he went to war. And the Lord gave the king of Aram into the hands of Othniel who overpowered him. And the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Some scholars believe that Othniel, because of his relation to Caleb, was 85 years old. How about that? Okay, older generation. You done? Is that what it is? Oh, you paid your dues. God now lets you coast. Is that how it goes? I don't think so. I'll tell you, how old was Abram when he was taken and he launched? How old was Moses when he got launched? Some of the greatest figures in all of biblical history were past 80. Here's the deal. You are never done until you're done. And if the spirit of the Lord comes upon you right now, you raise up and rise up a whole nother generation. You be the leader. You step out there. You take it. No, you're not done. No, you are not retired. You are never retired this side of heaven. If God comes upon you, you lead us. You take charge. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Oh, look at that. Hey, what was that outside? Man, she's cute. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, from the tribe of the Moabites. Hey, look at that. Power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him. That's a race of people that came from a pretty nasty story. Eglon came and attacked Israel and they took possession of the city of Palms, which is the area around Jericho. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. And now comes a glorious story. Here we go. Let's read it all the way through. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud. It's an awesome name. A left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with a tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, meaning if you were ruled by somebody, you would go and pay them money every so often. and he would, So they would send him with the money. And he did this for 18 years. It's very likely Ehud was in charge of this little group. Now, Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. Real quick question. If you're left-handed, why would you strap it to your right thigh? You understand? Because now you're going... Oh, right. I mean, that's kind of lame. Why don't you just strap it here and you can draw it out. If I'm right handed, I'd grab from here. You don't? it's like pulling out a holster and having to reach over and grab it and turn it around and then fire. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Why would you do that? He's got something planned. Here we go. Now, by the way, the Benjamites, there's a bunch of the Benjamites, hundreds of them that were sling men. They knew it just like David slung and hit Goliath says that from a distance of a huge amount, they could split a hair by a rock. These guys were just warrior men. Now, some believe that there was physical deformity. Half the commentaries say there's a physical deformity in their right hand. That's why they were left-handed. Left-handed in that day and age was basically a curse. The idea. So all these guys were known as the left-handed guys. Oh, their right hand doesn't work so well. They're kind of crippled. They're kind of handicapped. Look, that's why they use their left hand. He's going to use this, if that's true, to his advantage. Some people just say they're ambidextrous and they would use their left hand as kind of an honor. Commentaries are very, very split. Doesn't matter. Here we go. You guys, I like how I spend a lot of time on stuff that doesn't matter. Praise the Lord. It's kind of all my preaching, actually. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. That's awesome. That's awesome. And you kind of go, how fat was he? Because you're afraid that it's you, right? Because you're like, well, I hate for them to describe him. And then go, dang, that is totally me. Okay, here we go. You'll find out it's probably not you. Here we go. Eighteen. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way the men who had carried it. And at the idols near Gilgal, at the location, he turned back and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And the king said, Quiet, everyone. And all his attendants left him. So it was just him. He trusted Ehud and he was ready to hear this special message. Ehud approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, so clearly he could still get up, Verse 21, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh. In other words, they would have patted him down because they're the left-handed guys. And where would they pat him down? On his left side. Nobody would be stupid enough to strap it to the right side unless you're trying to hide it from detection. He then withdraws it from his right-hand side. What does he do with it? He plunges it into the king's belly. Yes. Even the handle sank in after the blade, which came out his back. Holy cow, that is a really hard sword plunge. Boo! All the way through. Whoops. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. This is awesome! It's just like, it's like fighting Java. It's like, whoa, whoa. whoa, whoa. And it kind of closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and he locked them. And after he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. And they said, he must be relieving himself in the inner house of the room. Right? This is the Bible. It's great. I love it. There's like fat billowing out over swords and there's relieving and stuff. It's great. They waited to the point of embarrassment. They're like, well, don't rush him. You know how he is. But when he didn't open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked him and they saw their Lord fall into the floor dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the idols and escaped to Sarah. And when he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went down with him from the hills with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands. And they followed him down, taking possession of the fords of Jordan that led to Moab. And they allowed no one to cross over. And at that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites All vigorous and strong, not a man escaped. And that day Moab was made subject to Israel and the land had peace for 80 years. That is the longest period in the book of Judges of peace ever. And it came at the hand of Ehud. That's pretty dramatic. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you got this last story that's one verse long. Clearly, they had begun to be stupid again. You understand that no matter how many times God delivers them, they run back to their sin like a fool to his folly, like a dog to his vomit. You remember that? It's a pretty picture of how we return to our sin, huh? After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath. Some people believe he was actually a Gentile who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. An ox goat is a long stick. And one side you would prod the sheep. The other side you would get stuff out so it was pointed. Right? He just comes in there. He started whacking people. 600 people. God, God, just keeps knocking them down. Right? They're like, oh, I'm falling. Oh, I'm 495. Oh, I'm falling. You know, they just beating them down. Right? That probably took a while. Spirit of God. He too saved Israel. Many commentaries made the point that God uses some pretty weird weapons. Samson's going to beat up a whole bunch of them with what? The jawbone of a donkey. This guy gets an ox goad. And the point is that I don't care what's in your hand, I care what's in your heart. If God is for you, who can be against you? But God, I'm not equipped. What's that in your hand? Do you understand that Moses delivered Israel from Egypt with a stick? And he never wielded a weapon. And when he walked up to the burning bush, God said to him, what? What's that in your hand? All I got is a staff. I guess that's what we'll do. And they were set free. If God calls you to do something, he will enable you to do it whether it is for your own deliverance or it is for the deliverance of another. That is why we stand in prayer for people. That is why we fight battles for people. That is why we consistently go to the Lord on behalf of others. Because the prayers of an average man and woman that's righteous before God is powerful and effective. Can you bring the team up, Tom? Sometimes God uses kindness, sometimes He uses consequence, but He's calling you home. And every time you run into that, He will give you a struggle that will push your neck to the ground until you cry out. And He will call you home. And just like the prodigal son didn't come home until he had spent all he had on wild living and wilder women, Only then did his father embrace him and he understood grace. Listen, I don't know what you've done. I don't know what you're involved in. I just know that it's likely that you have walked into bondage on your own. God has raised up deliverance for you. And sometimes you have come out in freedom, but you don't feel free. You feel like what you have done has completely ruined you for ministry for the rest of your life. The Bible is full of average ordinary failures. Welcome to the family. Because in the hands of someone empowered by God, nothing is impossible. Amen? Amen.